Hey, everybody, and welcome to another exciting midweek episode of The Back Room. Uh, very exciting. Today we have Congressman Pat Ryan of New York's 18th District uh, coming in to The Back Room. I mean, we're not doing any Zoom thing today. We got the man in the back room. So that's going to be very exciting. We're going to get to Pat in just a couple of minutes. This episode is probably going to post in about two or three days. So a couple of things we're going to talk about right now might actually age out by then. Probably not, but then there might be some new stuff by then too, which we didn't have a chance to talk about. But uh, so let's, the last 24 hours or so, there was some interesting stuff that went down. One of which was, speaking of going down, uh, they shot down another uh, uh, thing out of the sky, which they call a high altitude object. But this is the part that I love. Also, quote, cylindrical and silverish gray uh, vehicle or some kind of airship, spaceship thing that uh, is the size of a car. Now, back in the day, we used to call those flying saucers. So, like, are we, have we just been invaded? Are we, is, this, is this World War Four? Well, if you want to know, you have to go to Conspiracy Twitter, where <laughs> they are completely immersed in what we're never going to learn about. Yeah, right. They're probably fishing like little green men out of the Atlantic Ocean right now, probably. Entirely possible. Yeah. I mean, uh, what what is this thing? I mean, the best guess is it's probably a large drone, uh, which was flying at a high altitude. Right. That's... And it's not been claimed. We have no idea where it originated. Oh, well, if it gets claimed, it'll be claimed as a weather balloon. Venus, <laughs> Pluto, Mars, maybe. Are we finally seeing Martians? Well, no, I don't know. No. It's just, it's, it's, it's something... I, do you guys think uh, UFOs are real? Like, the, are you to believe in that kind of stuff? Outer I, space people? I feel like it's too vast a universe for us to be the only ones. Yeah, right? Well, it's that, kind of that's... arrogant of us to think like we're the only. I was looking at a, a, a planetary solar system chart with my two-year-old grandson the other day. And we were trying to, I was trying to explain to him and also his sister who's four. And just when you look at it in a linear sense, you're like, no, we can't possibly be the only civilization. Maybe it's a different kind of life form. But... Well, I think you can believe in extraterrestrial life without necessarily believing that they visited us. Well, have you, speaking of that, have you ever gone down like an Instagram rabbit hole? There's a great UFO page <laughs> that I subscribe to. And there's things that's just like, and then you hear like these pilots, like flying like Delta jets airlines. And they're like, yeah, we're about to hit their, what, what was that, Bob? Oh my God, you see that shit? Yeah, I saw it. What the fuck was it? And like, these are just, these are not quacks. These are, these are like pilots who have been flying jumbo jets for decades. There's the video that was released by the Navy just uh, two years ago, which showed very strange things. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, so I'm, I'm curious to see ultimately what gets put out by the government in terms of who, who or what this thing was. Uh, so I'm going to remain a little suspicious and conspiratorial. Well, you know, Harry Reid believed in all of this, and that's why he forced them to release that information. Yeah, and you know me, anything Harry Reid ever said <laughs> is the gospel to me, uh, especially about sports. He was an expert on sports. We also learned yesterday that there's more, get this, there's more classified documents floating around. Really? Yeah. Why? Mike Pence's house, they found, they found more at Mike Pence's house, hmm. and there's some New interesting stuff that was found at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, more uh, like a you said, Maddie, you a said laptop. A laptop, guys. For the are we still at five Republicans or seven? Seven. 
For the seven Republicans out there right now, I know you guys are obsessed with laptops, okay? And so as you're pouring over the whole Hunter Biden thing, sink your teeth into this one because I'm willing to bet you there is some awesome shit on Trump's laptop. Can't well, wait. Like love letters from Kim and Putin. It is an aid to Name. Trump. We have to clarify that. Uh, we, we, we're a podcast. We could take creative creative <laughs> well, license. So it's Trump's news? laptop. Do you think the P-tape's on the laptop? Of course. Digital version. I don't think we want to contribute to the new study that just came out that podcasts are completely filled with misinformation. <laughs> It, Trump, his aide. What's the, it's a different, it's all Trump. Potato, potato. Potato, potato. Yeah, right. You say potato, I say potato. Close enough. So, so yeah, there's a Trump laptop out there and there's more classified documents. And uh, that'll be interesting to see because it, it just doesn't end. I mean, I, I, I got to be honest with you. I started searching my house yesterday because <laughs> I felt like I got to have some classified documents in there. There must be something in there. So I haven't <laughs> found anything yet, but I think it wouldn't shock me if I came across Did them. you have your glasses on? No. Oh, shit. Maybe I should have put it I, I, I'll go back. Are you saying I'll you found nothing expired in any of the pantry? <laughs> no. <laughs> For those of you who weren't part of the conversation before this episode started, uh, these guys are teasing me because I ate four-year-old oatmeal yesterday. And it's not, a big, it's not a big deal other than the fact that literally for the last 24 hours, I've I think I've been married to a toilet. So uh, maybe a little too much information, but we like to be intimate here on the, in the back room with our guests and the hosts. Uh, I'm not joking, by the way. I literally just sent out like a flare for Imodium. And then, you know, there's my other favorite subject who just keeps getting more and more fun every day, George Santos. So in the last 24 hours, we learned that at the State of the Union speech, George Santos said, Arizona Senator Kristen, Kristen Sinema came up to him and was very congratulatory and supportive and, you know, just hang in there. I know you're up against a lot and I'm with you and I support you. And uh, that, was, that was very cool, except Senator Sinema said, I never even spoke to this clown. I'm shocked. Yeah, it is shocking. Even more shocking is that there's video going around now that uh, Santos, I think he was on Newsmax, gave an interview and said that he exited his company in 2001. Hmm. Problem with that is he was born in 1988, which means he was a CEO of whatever company uh, uh, when he was 13. Precocious bugger. Yeah. yeah, but you know he said he was a child prodigy, I'm sure. He did say that. He's, he's, he's a... Ch I don't know what he is. I'm trying to be kind here. Child. But uh, we'll get into that with our guest, Pat Ryan, today, because Pat Ryan, as a congressman, he's lucky enough that he gets to work with all these people every day. And we're going to ask him about that. We're going to ask him, what is it like to go to work every day with a bunch of crazies? So let's get to Pat. He is upstate New York's 18th congressional district congressman. Pat, welcome back to the back room. Thank you. I'm I'm actually in yeah. the back. Room Welcome for the first time. into the back. You're literally <laughs> in the back room. Yeah. So yeah. now you get to go out in the in the halls of Congress and tell people what an amazing place this is. People don't like the term back room deals in in DC. So we'll, yeah. Well, we have a back room. I don't know how many <laughs> no deals. deals are going on back here, but uh, you know, maybe we can work something out. You know, maybe uh, you know, give a couple of VIP passes to the. Supreme Court or something, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll work a deal out. So 
let's right get let's get right into some national stuff, and then I want to talk to you about mm, some local New York stuff. The State of the Union. What do you think? I thought it was great. I brought my wife as my date. Oh, cool. So uh, there's always a lot of you know attention or questions are who who are you bringing? So that was that was a lot of fun actually. It was the closest we get to date night with a one and three year old is is mm-hmm. like these kind of events. But I thought President Biden was great. Yeah, the way he handled the you know, un- incredibly unprofessional and uh, embarrassing feedback, shall we say. Yeah. Is that uh, where we're at now? Like, is that the new norm where, like, it's a WWF <laughs> wrestling match going forward if it's a Democratic I, uh, president giving a State of the Union? I refuse to, like, accept that that should be the way that we conduct ourselves. So, and I talked to a lot of, or a few Republican colleagues who were embarrassed as well, but, you know, they need to police their own and, and actually create some consequences. And right now there's none. So, mm-hmm. But we've heard about like that day or the day before that McCarthy, you know, read his people the riot act and be, behave yourselves. Don't, don't give them anything to sink their teeth into. Did that really happen? Like, do you know, like if, is that logically believable? I, oh yeah. No, I think, you know, leadership comes down to you can have a title, but do you have actual influence? Do people want right. to trust you, follow you, listen to you? I'm sh- certain he told them, asked them, cajoled them. Yeah. But you can see how much control he has over, over these, uh, over these characters, and it's it's essentially none. Yeah. Well, his, you know, one of the things I love and most people love about the State of the Union is you you can't hide. So, like when the president is speaking, there's like two people behind him, right? The vice president, and the speaker. And there was those moments where McCarthy was like, oh, geez. Like, you know, it, it just looked like he was like, oh, Marjorie, shut up. Like, I, like I told you not to do this. And I, I, it was like a rare moment where I, I kind of felt just a little sorry for him, but I guess he creates his own. I, I feel no pity. He's, yeah, uh, I don't feel any pity either. I'm sorry. His, no, I appreciate the humanity and your, I'm trying. Uh, your empathy. But I'm uh, trying to be no, I humane think... here. Like what's interesting and not to be too inside baseball, but we, the, the Democrats had the same margin for the last two years. Right. You know, Speaker Nancy Pelosi had the same five vote mm-hmm. margin. And there's lots of disagreement within the Democratic caucus on a whole lot of things. Mm-hmm. But her leadership and, and I think actually the Democratic Party's commitment to a set of values mm-hmm. is what actually like holds people together. Whereas I think McCarthy is just literally about power for power's sake. And so when there's no values to like bind you together, you see everybody just devolve into doing whatever advances their narrow self-interest. Right. So that's wearing a weird white fur <laughs> coat to, to and screaming. Yeah, I, I mean, that or? jacket literally was worn by every hooker in every, in every 70s movie. So <laughs> you, you said that. You and it was, it. Yeah, I said it. I'll take credit for that. <laughs> and, and there's amazing memes going around of like, you yeah. know, her holding her mouth as she's shrieking. And, the, the, the Cruella de Vil one's really yeah. home for me as, you know, a fan of 101 Dalmatians. Well, the, you know, the thing with her and Bobert and all those guys that they're not there to legislate. They're not there to hold, you know, themselves to a standard of decorum. It's all performative. It's all personal brand awareness. And so you can almost imagine McCarthy saying, just don't do any stuff. And them going, ah, screw you. Yeah. Because that's, that's what they're, then they get to tweet about it right. and raise money off it, et cetera, et cetera. And, and to be fair, like it's actually, and, and the media, it, it helps get more eyes and clicks and everything. I mean, in the room, it actually felt less contentious 
than I think it, I watched some of it on TV, it felt actually less contentious in the room mm -hmm. because it's one voice screaming out. There's not like a camera in the room panning to that one voice. And I think that's actually sort of epitomizes or sort of a microcosm of our media ecosystem where the cameras are trained on the loudest, usually most disruptive mm -hmm. and often disingenuous right. voice. Whereas, you know, there's 420 some or whatever other people there that we might not agree ideologically, but generally I think like are there probably for, for mostly noble reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that is something we also have to figure out is how do we, how do we resolve that. Yeah. Well, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? That's, and they know that. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I notice every year when I watch it, which drives me nuts when it's like the room is divided and you know, the reactions or whatever. But the, this year I thought if you're, if you're a member of the working class, the middle class, seniors, college students, people who want to be unionized, like if you're on the fence about which party to vote for, all you need to do, you don't need to read a newspaper, you need to never watch Fox or see, just watch who applauds for what. Yep. Because literally, it's like, yeah, we need better health care. And they sit with their arms full. And we need, you know, workers should be able to unionize. Folded arms. Uh, and we should have clean air and clean water and lower taxes for the middle class. Like, they're not clapping for anything that, is important to those people. Yeah. No. I, Why would that not be like, hey, wait a second. Yep. The Democrats are the ones talking about all the shit that I need, and they're like mad about it. Yeah. I um, and I think the president did a really good job, just like, kind of, talking to the American people, like really talking about things that I think, often the State of the Union can feel really disconnected and wonky, and I thought he did a very good job, um talking to issues that are actually affecting mm -hmm. people. And talking directly into the camera to the people at home, which I thought was a great technique. He yeah. seems so prepared for that, even the, like, the zingers and the, the dealing with the hecklers. Like, well, you I, know, they fin finally prepared for that stuff. Well, people forget he, he is a creature of the legislature. Like, right. he, I saw his energy pick up yeah. when he was he able to go back stuff. and forth and actually expose the incredible hypocrisy yeah. and I think almost cruelty of, of these Republicans mm -hmm. that want to get rid of Social Security, Medicare, mm -hmm. that have undoubtedly been on the record about it and mm -hmm. now are trying to somehow, you know, squirm away from it. So yeah. we, we are going to keep on that over and over and over. Well, Senator Mike Lee, you know, he's like, what? cut Medicare. And then that video surfaces yeah. of him saying, I basically exist to cut Social Security and Medicare. It was interesting because the, the whole finish the job mantra was like, he's running. Like that's, that's the basis of a campaign theme right there. Finish the job. Yeah, I think the way I, I, I wouldn't have maybe, I mean, I'm not criticizing. I would have said it a slightly different way. But I think that idea that in the last two years, the Congress, I was there for the last few months of it, but the Congress passed incredibly impactful big, big legislation on climate and, and lowering healthcare costs, on infrastructure, um, on, on a whole bunch of other things. But we actually haven't seen that make its way necessarily yet to people, like to your roads that still have potholes and, you know, to your home that still has really high utility costs. So I think of my job really, and hopefully every member thinks this way, but certainly I do, like we have to get that two people 
so that they can feel and touch and see impact and mm -hmm. feel some of the weight lifted off uh, their shoulders. And so I always say like, you know, we have to, we have to deliver relief is how that's like, to me, the operative two words is uh, delivery, but recognizing how much pressure people still really are feeling right now. Well, that's, a, that's a good point you're making because I wanted to ask you about messaging. You know, I, I think, and I'm very critical of Democrats just as much as I am Republicans, and I've been, at times I've been critical of Biden, but I got to say right now, my feeling is he's perhaps the most productive, successful first term president so far, ever. Yet his polling is in the toilet. Now, We've seen polling the last couple of years, three, four years, that has been ridiculously inaccurate. So maybe it's chalked up to that. But how do you explain, as someone from the inside, this disconnect between his success and all the things you just mentioned and the bipartisan legislation in the face of unprecedented hostility and, and obstructionism? Like, how is th that so disconnected from his popularity? I think I don't have the data in front of me, but I would guess any president that takes a big swing or a big series of swings and actually wants to really move things and change things experiences inevitable pushback, mm -hmm. blowback, kind of sets high expectations and doesn't fully meet them. Certainly Obama did this with the Affordable, Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. And then history becomes the judge. I mean, Obama is now one of, if not the most popular presidents in modern history. But if you looked at his polling numbers, I mean, the, the, the Democrats lost 62, I think, House seats right. in, uh, in 2010. So I think in some ways, I mean, this is a weird way to think about it. It's like, um, if you've taken a big enough swing and, and, uh, it, it almost inevitably means you're going to get even more initial pushback. Mm. But then nice. if you've done it right and got it pushed through, the, the longer arc of history will judge, I think, President Biden as truly one of the most effective, not only getting us through sort of the end of the pandemic period and all the economic disruption, but the, I mean, the bipartisan infrastructure law alone, it's $1.3 trillion right. to fix. I mean, we have water infrastructure in, in this district from 1887 in Middletown, for example, and it's, you know, similar here where we're sitting in Rhinebeck mm -hmm. and Rhinecliff. So like that stuff takes time to make its way to change people's lives. But I think we'll, we'll, we'll see that. And then the other just thing I would say on that is a lot of the punditry and takes have just been consistently wrong, especially the last few years. Like even in our, our congressional campaign last year, people, all the experts thought we wouldn't win. They told us to focus on different things than we did. And Luckily, we stayed attuned to listening to kind of people on the ground rather than the kind of polls and pundits. And I think Biden is really good at this. Like his focus on talking about democracy and threats to democracy uh, ahead of the midterms when everyone said not to talk about it or that it wouldn't matter and criticized them for it, I think was a big part of why we did much better than folks expected across mm -hmm. house races. So I think his gut is good. Like he's really connected to like working people, blue collar, like I walked out and said to my wife, like, that's like working class Joe Biden. Like that yep. was home run. He even said, you know, my dad said to me, Joey. Yeah. And it's real. You can tell. <laughs> he does authentic. that all the time and he's folksy and he connects. Yeah. But you know, there's a part of me that just wonders or fears, like we live in such a partisan toxic landscape right now. 
and everyone's tribal, you know, and it's almost like the other side. You could tell them that Biden just found the cure for cancer and their response will probably be like, oh yeah, great. He's going to put funeral parlors out of business now. <laughs> like, no, no, I just said he's found the cure for, like, there doesn't seem to be anything that is going to reach, whether it's 20, 30% of the the electorate. Yeah. And it's like, they don't know what is in their own best interest anymore. There used to be a time when a Republican could be like, you know what, I'm blah, blah, blah. And then I'm going to vote for the Democrat now because I'm tired of, now it's like, Anything that the Republican does, a lot of these people will accept, no matter how it impacts them personally. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't, I wish there was an easy button to fix that. I do think it's somewhat cyclical in, uh, we're at a point of maximum mm -hmm. polarization. All of our, I, I do think a lot of this, not to get too wonky, is traced to the internet, to social media, sure. to the, and the current even, you know, broadcast media and, and print media landscape where like there just is no way to sort through anymore for people like what actually objectively how to think about things. So you just kind of pick a team and you sort of almost are forced to go with one side or the other. But a lot of my friends, especially people I served in the military with, to me are increasingly feeling like neither of those two sort of echo chambers are serving what they think they need and what, what they want to hear. So I hope that we can, like, we need to figure out how to shake ourselves out of this. I, I hope we can do it in a constructive way. But often in, in previous history, it's taken some huge external crisis yeah. or God forbid war or something. I was optimistic the pandemic might, might do that for us. Call me, call me old fashioned. And but look at all it, the conspiratorial crap that came out of that. Yeah. It just almost like exacerbated the lunacy. But what I think, like, this is a point where real leadership could have made a difference. Mm -hmm. I think, unfortunately, having Trump in that seat at that time, where there was a real opportunity to unify the American mm -hmm. people back to values of taking care of each other and doing things for the greater good and getting through a tough time. And he obviously doubled down on the opposite for his mm -hmm. own mm -hmm. self-interest. But as we're going to have, I think, more crises, maybe mm -hmm. globally. I don't know how it pans out. But this is where we need leaders that can figure mm -hmm. out how to. So, so you don't you you don't think injecting bleach was a good strategy? <laughs> not a doctor. Probably not the best advice confident. from a president. Yeah, like, exactly. Not that's not leadership in your mind. The not not ultraviolet rays. Not quite. So to your point that you just made, all you have to do is watch uh, or Nepo baby Huckabee's rebuttal. Right? It, it couldn't have been darker if like Darth Vader delivered it himself. Right? And so. You got, on the one hand, you have President Biden touting all this amazing stuff that's helping America. And then she comes on and it's just more poison, yeah. poison, poison, poison. But, and everybody wonders like, why is half, almost half the country or 30, 40%, why are they poisoned? They're just delivered this poison over and over. And this was like a, a I mean, you can't get more legit than like the rebuttal to the State of the Union. Right, like that's a, sanctioned. That's, is, that's not like yeah, a, a fringe. It's not the Don ben Bongino podcast, right. right? So it's like, and even that was just so full of lies and, and poison. And it's like, I don't know, it's hard to imagine that ever changing because that's their strategy now. That's their, that's their path to victory in their, in their minds, even though they've lost everything. Well, and that's, that's what I take solace in is that I, it's not actually working right. and that's not what people want. Right. And again, we, you know, I try to, like most who speak the things I can 
more authoritatively talk about. And like, so our, our congressional campaigns where our opponent was like about as dark and nasty and divisive as you could get. And it's tempting to try to come back at it that same way, but we mm -hmm. really try to stay positive, constructive. And I, and what really hisses me off is in the same vein that the Sanders and others of the world are so negative, they still try to assert a hold on the flag and patriotism and being American. And I am so, this is like a personal mission of mm -hmm. mine to reassert that the, the Democratic Party and the values we stand for are the exact values mm -hmm. that I believe our country were, were founded on of selflessness, of taking care of each other, of, uh, you know, those kinds of more humane and uh, ideas. So I, 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 I still am an optimist and believe that in the long run that that yeah, that well, works. but if you look at like where we are today, if you go back, I don't know, let's go back 10 years probably is a safe bet. When would a Republican be happy that the United States president practically blew Putin on stage in Helsinki or, or that he has love letters from, from Kim Jong-un or that he likes when people march up the rioters, storm the Capitol and beating the shit out of cops? with the U.S. flag, right. like the top of their skulls would have come off. Somewhere along the line, all that shit became okay. That's what I try to focus on. When did, when and how did that all, is it really just Trump? Can we give him credit for all that? Oh, no, I think it goes back to, I trace it to Gingrich and a lot of the 94 wave of um, just pretty transparently putting the pursuit of power ahead of all else. All but even when it else. came to national defense and our enemies, like there still seemed to be that line. Like you could be crazy and vitriolic and all that stuff. But when it came to, def you know, North Korea and Russia, those were still the enemy and patriotism and the flag and blah, 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 and defending the cat. That, that treasonous stuff, just like now it's, it's nothing. Like you're a veteran, like these people whose families are the ones who sent young men and women off to war because it's the middle class that sends the soldiers, right? Always. Is that in their minds what they had their family members serve and die and get maimed over? To come back home only to support treason and insurrection? And it, it's just, I don't know when the, everything just turned topsy-turvy in, 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 in that part of the electorate's minds. Well, and I think we have not done a good job as Democrats of owning that space and not ceding that ground. Mm -hmm. And I, it, it, it's always baffled me. I mean, I would meet people and they'd be like, oh, you're, you're a veteran, but you're a Democrat? I'm like, well, yeah, like I literally signed up to potentially give my life to help other people, which I think is a pretty aligned with mm -hmm. the, the Democratic uh, Party kind of a value. And I, I actually had a, a borderline, uh, sort of a, a near socialist uh, healthcare system that uh, took care of uh, myself and, and mm -hmm. my fellow soldiers. Uh, not that it was perfect. And, and even now in the VA, I, I receive single, single payer universal care. Again, not perfect, but everybody gets, gets access and, and coverage. So we, we just don't talk about those kind of things that way. And I'm, I'm still trying to figure out the right ways to use the right language. And, and I actually think one of the areas I've been thinking a lot about, which I know we we're texting about is like, the, the moment we're at with the competition that's growing uh, in the public eye with China, mm -hmm. I think there's a real actually opportunity to think about 
how do we reunify the American people and explain um, how investments in education and infrastructure and caring for each other and bringing you know good jobs back to to the country are actually oriented around this growing. I think it's just going to be more and more public awareness. Sometimes it takes, I guess, a balloon flying over the country or or to, a flying saucer. Yeah, to to bring awareness to the to the growing challenges mm -hmm. and and competition with China. So. Um, still trying to think about, I'm still thinking about how to sort of articulate those ideas. But. Mm -hmm. And uh, just a couple more things in the house before we move on. Um, I told you the first time we, we spoke that I, you're a very affable guy. You got a perfect te temperament for, for politics. I, I don't think I'd last five minutes. How is it like, what is it like going to work every day when, when the Marjorie Taylor Greens and Boberts and Gosars and Matt Gates, when they're, they have the same job as you, the same power as you, and they're off their rockers? Like, yeah. how, is it dispiriting? Is it uh, deflating? Is it, uh, does it make you pessimistic? Does it, how does it impact your day when you're there as a serious guy trying to do a serious job and there are just clowns roaming around there? Yeah. Dan dangerous clowns. Yeah. Um, I try to be, I try to recognize that as much as I disagree with them, they, they were duly elected by the same number of people in their district that elected me. And I think we have to start with some foundational level of maybe not agreement, but respect for the fact that that is our system. And then how do we, how do we make it better? How do we help people see what's happening? Um, I don't mean to sound... I feel like I'm sounding almost naive here, but um, I, I just think at the end of the day, they have the same vote that that I do, the same, you know, they may have a media, uh, you know, a microphone more so because of the, the media dynamics we're talking about, but I still have much more faith in people that they, that they just don't actually want that in the medium and long term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes it has to you have to see the real ugly before you can. So you're you're recognize. holding out like that you just might co-sponsor some legislation with George Santos, perhaps. Well, Santos is like a red line for me. <laughs> I mean, if you just lie blatantly, then that's just. I mean, I've yeah, I've been pretty strongly outspoken from literal day zero about about that. And just in the last two, the last twenty four <laughs> hours, we we learn. I mean, not that whatever we've learned about him before yesterday was wasn't enough for a red line. But just yesterday, we learned that he claimed, you know, he said at the State of the Union, Senator Gerson Cinema was very congratulatory and supportive. Whatever. And she's like, I never spoke to this guy. That's number one. Number two, uh, he said he left his company in 2001. He was born in 1988, which means he was 13 running a company. Like, he's beyond the pale. Yeah. Like, he is, he's like a sociopath. But then, you know, we had, we had one of those guys in the White House. So, again, is that the new norm? We're just... We're just chock full of so we're the electorate that you speak of. They're electing sociopaths. I mean, honestly, like we have to do better at making the positive case. Like you look at what happened in Long Island and and much of New York in these races. In George Santos ran in 2020. He lost by 14 points in in 2020, mm -hmm. and then somehow in 2022 he comes back and um, you know picks up almost 20 percent swing. And a lot of that is because we didn't run good campaigns in New York State as Democrats. Mm -hmm. We weren't clear what we were for. Mm -hmm. We weren't organized. We weren't doing the work on the ground. I think we took for granted a lot of things. And so 
we have to take ownership of that, not just, I mean, he's obviously, I think he's just a total sociopath, obviously has deep mental health issues and shouldn't be in Congress, but we can't just like, we have to actually figure out how to solve these problems, in my opinion. So as I try to be constructive about it, like there are five, at least house seats in New York that we should have won mm -hmm. that. I'm very focused on us winning in a year and a half here. Now, that was and one of my questions. How did we lose those seats? What happened in New York, of all places? That could be a, a two-hour, <laughs> you know, multi-part podcast series. Mm -hmm. But I think in short, we weren't clear what we were for. Like, mm -hmm. I think if you went around and asked New Yorkers, um, especially in the governor's race, what was Lee Zeldin for? What, what did he want to do? Everyone would have said, like, he talks about crime and safety. And I mean, it was a disgusting, fear-mongering, mm -hmm. very cynical view, but it, it was clear what he was for, what he was going to do. If you ask, like, what are Democrats in New York going to do? I don't know that you would have gotten a clear set of two or three principles of what we're for, what we're going to fight for, a sense that we were going to really um, be about something. And so I think when you create that vacuum, it's and you don't give people that other alternative, it's really hard. So like in my race, we had those same dynamics um, and an opponent who was propagating that same fear-mongering, but we were very deliberate about being for a set of things, particularly reproductive freedom and mm -hmm. aggressive environmental and climate action and a real economic plan. And I think that gave people something to be for and, and to believe in. And we, we were going through the, we finally got final, final election data. We've been going through the data the last week or two. We earned a lot of independent and Republican votes. Mm -hmm. Um, because again, I think if you present a, a thoughtful position with integrity, that's authentic, which is probably the most important thing people will, that is what people want. <laughs> yeah. Well, Lieutenant Governor Antonio Delgado, when he ran for Congress, presented the same you know, uh, platform and, and, and campaign promise. And, and, and he was very popular and, and he won, you yeah. know, which was a surprise to many people. You yeah. know, you recently were appointed to, you're on the armed services committee now. And, uh, it was a important hearing recently. We want to talk about that. Yeah. So I, I, tr I want to, I've been trying to talk more about defense and national security stuff because I think we don't talk about it mm -hmm. enough, but talk about it from the view of how it affects all of us, mm -hmm. particularly how it affects my kids. So we talked a lot about China this week. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a growing consensus, not just because of the, the whole balloon incident, but just among those that follow this closely, that the grave kind of risks, if we don't manage the, the growing tensions with China the right way. Mm -hmm. And I describe it to people as I have a one and three year old son. I believe they could likely fight in a world war full on mm -hmm. like the, the likes of which most of us have never had to live through and sort of our, my grandparents' generation did, if we don't get this right, that's what we're potentially headed towards. So it's mm -hmm. like the seismic thing that's building. And so one of the main reasons I wanted to leave a great job in local government and work on these national and global issues is figuring out how to manage uh, the right way and how to explain to people who are also dealing with a lot of other stuff in their day-to-day -day lives, right? why this matters mm -hmm. to their day-to-day -day, um, life. So, you know, I, I always talk a lot about not just the military competition with China, but the economic competition of the Hudson Valley in particular. Mm -hmm. We've lost out because most of those jobs have gone to 
uh, China over throughout my lifetime, and now we're doing the work to kind of bring them and who's back who's here. moved those jobs out. Uh, I mean, IBM is the big one in our corporate America. Area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And who basically runs corporate America? The Republican Party. Rich, right? Old white people, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So, and this is what frustrates me when we don't talk about it this way is like, this was a set of deliberate choices we made in the 80s and 90s, mostly under the Reagan era, but well, many Democrats perpetuated in, into the 90s and mm -hmm. NAFTA as an example. And there's clear uh, non... I mean, you just can't argue with the consequences and the situation um, that that we're in. And I'm really proud that, like, in a pretty bipartisan way, the Congress took some of this on. The Chips and Science Act, um, which was pretty bipartisan, I think will go down in history as one of the most meaningful pieces of legislation. We're already seeing, like, we had the president come in September of last year mm -hmm. and announce $20 billion in commitment from IBM back to the Hudson Valley in New York State which is sort of like, for me, on a personal level with my family's history, my grandpa worked at IBM for 36 years in Kingston, just like a very mm. powerful moment that if we make better choices uh, policy-wise, it, it meaningfully for generations can sort of fix the, the situation that we're in. But it was like what you were saying before, and gets back to messaging, it's like the Republican Party, the Huckabees, all these people... They're so good at poisoning their base to think like it's those scary brown people and black people coming across the border who are taking your jobs. But they're not taking their jobs. It's right. it's the corporate guys at IBM who are taking their jobs. And I think they don't they don't make that connection. They're I do, voting for people who are literally going against everything that's important to them. I, I am guilty of this as well. Um, I think we overthink and over parse in our how we describe things. And at the end of the day, like the way our brains work is like, we, we need a sort of a villain in some ways, um, to explain when things are changing or uncomfortable or we're mad or we're affected or we're hurt. And Republicans have been so good at disingenuously and dishonestly, but creating villains out of frankly, the, the exact wrong people. But I think we're finally as a party actually getting better at not being afraid to say who the actual villains are, whether mm -hmm. that's big uh, corporate interests or, um, I mean, you would have never heard a president of the United States in the State of the Union slam the pharmaceutical industry right. and just be blatant, brutally honest mm -hmm. about it. Not necessarily the people working in it, but just like the, the corporate motives. And I think Trump did that actually really well. And I think we're we're finally realizing his diagnosis was right. It's just his solutions were wrong and destructive, but I think there are constructive solutions to to that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that's another thing that at the State of the Union, when he's like, we got to bring down the cost of prescription drugs and bring down the cost of insulin. And the no Republicans stand. Their yeah. arms crossed. Right. Like, you can't even clap for that. No. Like, don't you people have grandfathers and like, uh, it's just crazy. But they don't write them, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, of, well, uh, exactly. Well, million, and that's my point. It's dollars. like, Look at who they advocate for. Right. Um, talk to me about the SALT caucus and, 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 and explain that. And I know that doesn't, that's not about like the, the benefits of kosher versus iodized <laughs> salt. So what else, what's going on there with the SALT caucus? So <laughs> SALT is like a, a tax deduction. Mm -hmm. really comes down to back to the point of providing relief, which I think is like the main imperative that, that I have down there. This is a situation where this was a Trump era 
thing, part mm -hmm. of Trump's tax bill that quite simply did huge, 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 unprecedented tax breaks to big corporations. And where did that money come from? It came from middle-class and working-class people, specifically in blue states. I mean, he, he was open about the fact this was about punishing New York, California, Chicago, and other blue states. And what it basically is, is double taxation, where in the past, for 104 years, you, you didn't have to pay taxes twice. Like if you Mm -hmm. Whatever your local tax bill was, you could write it off on your federal and mm -hmm. not literally pay pay twice. Trump got rid of that, or I should say lowered the the amount that you could uh, write off to be more technically correct. And what it really did is just punish working people, uh, middle class people, teachers, uh, firefighters, cops, and and really double extra punish blue states that ironically are the ones doing the things we want them to do, which are using those local tax dollars to invest in schools and mm -hmm. infrastructure. So the, the states that don't invest in their states are like being d directly rewarded and incentivized to continue that bad uh, behavior. So you see education outcomes down, you see buildings crumbling to the ground in Florida. You, I mean, it's just um, very cynical uh, view. So this is actually a bipartisan caucus saying we need to restore this uh, state and local tax deduction. It actually, you have Republicans and Democrats agreeing on this. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, basically the people blocking it are the, the, the Trumpy folks um, who just don't want to uh, find the, admit find the they cure were for wrong. cancer. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the only other argument is if you're from one of these states that has benefited from the system, then you don't want to roll this back. Because right now, New York. For every dollar New York sends to Washington, we get about 93 cents back in mm -hmm. federal money. Mm -hmm. That other seven cents is going to red states that don't invest. So we're literally, we, New Yorkers, are not only paying to invest in our people, but we're actually subsidizing other states who are not investing right. uh, in their people. So if, if you're getting free money, why would you want to... Uh, you know, change that. So mm -hmm. I think this is something that we actually could get done in this Congress. Mm -hmm. And and I'll I'll criticize Democrats here. We were in charge last Congress and couldn't get this through, uh, which is very frustrating to me. So let's talk about. Uh, uh, good luck with that, by the way. That is important. Uh, let's talk about Central Hudson, a local New York issue. I recently got a bill. I think I, I think my bill for January was like $428,000. So I'm exaggerating, not by much though. I think I used like 426 million kilowatt hours. I'm a, it's only a weekend house, so I must have been doing a lot of drying and cooking. What is going on there? I mean, in all seriousness, yeah. the... I literally feel like they're pulling numbers out of thin air every month and going... All right, that's what we'll charge you this month. <laughs> I called there, and you yeah, can't. Good if luck you, with that. If you're lucky to get through to someone, yeah, there, and I'm sure there's some nice, smart people there. But it, it literally, you get through to someone, and, and literally, you're talking to an absolute moron who doesn't have any clue what's going on. I was told my January bill was uh, so high because it's it's an estimated bill based on last January, and I was like, well, okay, I, I get that. Uh, but how do you explain that my kilowatt hours was half? last January of what it is this January, like, well, this January, I'm sorry. It, there's no, they give you an answer that makes no sense. Yeah. And then they're like, uh, all right, well, well, I'll bump it up to the, what is going on there? This is like over a year, two years now, right? It's almost a year of 
documented issues and, mm-hmm. and potentially more. I want to quickly defend the Central Hudson staff because I actually think... I any of you are going to do that. No, no. I mean, I think... And I've, I've been brutal on mm-hmm. the company and the mm-hmm. leadership and mm-hmm. called for the CEO to resign. But the, I actually feel ho- really bad for the poor mm-hmm. folks that have been handed... True. I, this I give you that. mess. Mm-hmm. And yet, and like they're working overtime to try to fix the mistakes of the sort of corporate overlords that mm-hmm. uh, set up the system. So what what's happening at the high level is what we were talking about before, which is there was a major acquisition by a multi-billion dollar multinational company of Central Hudson. And just syst- systematically over the last decade since then, they've underinvested in a whole bunch of things, including their people, including the physical infrastructure, Mm -hmm. as well as their billing system. Mm -hmm. What specifically happened here is they tried to move to a new billing system Mm -hmm. in August, and it was such an epic, epic failure that I don't think they even actually know the scope of sort of the damage. And I mean, we get 10, 20, 30 calls a day of people's stories in our office alone of how screwed up this is. And I don't even think they can, can tell you. So it's just like a fundamental breach of trust. I think the only way to fix it is like kind of, they're gonna have to clean house at the top, bring in a leader who can actually understand and appreciate and take ownership for how systemic the failure is and then get to work. Well, will, will, will there be that day where there is accountability and ownership? Will, will, Will they, will I get, will Mr. Ostroy get a check one day for like $1,800 because they overcharged me and they yeah. found it and blah, blah, blah. Will, will, will there be a reconciliation someday or is this just going to be? I think there has to be. And I think there, there's a few different ways that that could, there's two specific ways that we're pushing for that to happen. One is there's, excuse me, a, a class action lawsuit, mm-hmm. which is I mean, I mean, I'm not, I'm part of, cause I'm a central Hudson customer, but beyond that, not part of, um, that will certainly come with some financial damages. And I think will prove effective. It's a long path, mm-hmm, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then there's a push for what's called a prudence review, which is the next sort of step of escalation from New York state mm-hmm. where they could, if it goes fully the way we expect, they can actually levy financial penalties on central Hudson that would ultimately serve as restitution to, to affected customers. So one of the things we're just really encouraging people to do is like, really, I know it's annoying, but document and save your stuff now so that as this sorts itself out, you can have those records to sort of claim. That's a lot of what we're, my office is helping people Mm -hmm. with documenting that. And if there's, if there, is there an, is there a place, if someone wanted to become part of the complaint community, Yeah, what are the what are the best places, aside from your office that you mentioned, what's set up to deal with this where people it is, call? It is a growing community. Yes. So our office can help because we have been doing this for a year and mm-hmm. can help direct people. But mm-hmm. there's a, a the, the, the official oversight of utilities is called the New York State Public Service Commission. Mm-hmm. This is their legal mandate to hold these utilities accountable. They have an ongoing investigation. There are now over 12,000 a formal complaint. So you can just go online, fill out, it takes two to three minutes, fill out a form and you join that official list of complainants uh, there. On the civil suit, as a Central Hudson customer, you're already part of that. Mm. But we are also able, um, 
in our office and other elected officials too, Senator Michelle Hinchy and whoever your state electeds are, are able to often escalate and help break through the, the bottleneck in Central Hudson customer service if you have a really mm -hmm. egregious mm -hmm. issue. Like the mayor of Newburgh had a $700,000. So I was not... No. You Joking like when you joked about that, I was like, oh, that's nothing. I you mean, were like, Did, yeah. really? Oh, I have to get on that. Before. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, um, like, I didn't take it lightly to call for someone's resignation. I mean, that's a pretty serious step that I wouldn't just do if I didn't think it was kind of the last option at this point to try to get this mm -hmm. fixed. My biggest frustration is we all mess up, everybody mm -hmm. makes mistakes, but they have refused to take accountability for those mistakes. Like yeah. they double down on, well, at this point, just deceiving people and not, not taking ownership. Well, so, it's hu hubris bordering on criminality, in my opinion. And I, and I think, again, it, we can't let people forget that this is a deliberate choice. Mm -hmm. We allowed what used to be a much more locally owned, locally run utility to get bought out by a foreign owned uh, big conglomerate. And of course the incentives change. Most of that company of, or if any of them have never even set foot here. Mm -hmm. So their, their profits and revenues shockingly are, are up mm. while everybody else right. is literally paying for that. Right. And so again, I'm glad we're, we're leaning into this more mm -hmm. back to the, the democratic party, but I want to, I've been talking with colleagues in other states and we are not, this is one of the worst in the country mm -hmm. failures, but this is not unique. Like and and these mergers are approved by the federal government. So I think there is some real broader action that we need mm -hmm. to take. It's 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 sort of an antitrust, anti-monopoly kind right. of situation at this point um, that we need to dive in on. Well, it's an important fight and I'm glad you're a part of that fight and keep All going. Right. I know you're, you're, you've got to go. I, I did want to point out for the listeners, uh, you mentioned before the five vulnerable seats in New York State. You tweeted about that, I think last night or tonight in a fundraising uh, tweet. So go to Pat Ryan's web, uh, website, which is? I think it's patryanforcongress.com. Okay. I wasn't sure if you still had the four Congress in there. Yeah. You well, our, we have our official, our, uh -huh. if you need, if you need constituent services stuff, it's patryan.house.gov okay. is our official page. Go there, um, show you love, drop some dollars and help. You want to go on our camp? That's not, that's not a campaign thing. So that's, take, clear. take, take those five <laughs> seats back and, and then flip the house. We, yeah. And like back to the you know, the first half of our conversation, I think the chaos of what we've already seen with the Republicans in charge from literally the, the first minutes trying to take 15 votes to, right. to choose a speaker is unfortunately going to continue. Mm -hmm. And as the American people see that, I do think it creates more and more opportunity and impetus for change. So New York will be, we're, we don't usually think of ourselves as a battleground state, at least right. on a presidential map, mm -hmm. but for the House, we are either number one or number two battleground yep. for, for the, the national map. So, you know, I've got a hard race here, but there's at least five or six, maybe seven others that mm -hmm. are flippable. Well, so if you're a New Yorker, focus on New York. Yes. <laughs> and we're glad you're in Congress. Thank you. Fighting for us. Uh, Thank thanks for coming in. You've been very generous again with your time. Yeah. Glad that you. you finally came in and you saw this. Beautiful... I had to, I had to see it in person. <laughs> yes. It's awesome. Well, you'll come back again. For sure. Thank Take you care. for having me. Take care. Right. Thanks guys. All right. Well, before we get into the uh, the closing wrap up, I just want to say, you know, in, in the back room, we always ask people about their top five, who their top five musical artists are. And on the way over here to the studio today, I, I heard Sweet Cherry Wine by Tommy James and the Shondells. Really cool, trippy 60s band. And they're one of my favorite bands. And so I was like, A, 
no one's ever mentioned Tommy James and the Shondells. And, and by the way, Tr Tommy James and the Shondells, Crimson and Clover, Crystal Blue Persuasion, I think we're alone now. Moni Moni, Hanky Panky. I mean, these are some of the greatest songs. So I just wanted to give a shout out to Tommy James and the Shondells, basically because they're probably never going to get a shout out from anyone when we ask who the top five is. Well, in any case, that's episode 42. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446. Send us an email at backroomandy at gmail.com or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review because it's very helpful. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen, also known as Jenny Hamoud, Patricia Wind, she's only known as Jenny by me, Patricia Wind and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, New York State 18th Congressional District, Congressman Pat Ryan. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.